I'm Karen Lewis, and thank you for listening to Recovery Bites. This podcast is about life in recovery from an eating disorder. The good and the not so good. The successes and the challenges. Episodes will include stories from fully recovered professionals about the sometimes sad, sometimes painful, but always beautiful accounts from their recovery. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone, here we go. This is a very sacred episode. First of all, I do not just have one, but I have two guests on today. We are going to be speaking with OJ Bouchel and Jamie Dannenberg. And let me explain to all of you how I feel about OJ and Jamie. Before we got on recording, I said to the two of them, I feel like I am starstruck by the two of you. And I do not get starstruck by celebrities. I get starstruck by souls. And they are two incredible souls doing really powerful work. That is all I'm going to say for this introduction. I just think we need to jump right in. Okay, here we go. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites. I am so excited and honored to introduce not just one, but we have two guests on today. This is the first time we're doing it, so I'm really excited. So today we have on OJ Bouchel and Jamie Dannenberg. Welcome both of you to the show. Thanks so much for having us. We're excited. Yeah, thank you. This is great. I am, I'm really excited to have the two of you on. I, I was just gushing over the two of you while we were talking before interviewing because I think everybody, um, everybody needs to hear the work that the two of you are doing. It is powerful. It is courageous. It is vulnerable. I'm sure it's frightening at times, but it's mostly inspiring. So could the two of you tell the listeners a little bit about yourselves? Absolutely. Um, and thank you for saying saying those words. It is. It's all of those things at times. Um, but okay, so I'm OJ and my pronouns are they, them. And I'm in recovery from an eating disorder and co-occurring mental health conditions. And I write about on Third Wheels, which we'll introduce um, after, but I write about the intersectionality of eating disorders, trauma, sexuality, and gender identity and expression. And I really use my experience of seeking treatment and recovery for my eating disorder as a person who is queer to help raise awareness um, of the need for culturally responsive and affirming recovery support services for the queer community. And I... <laughs> I'm Jamie Dannenberg, and I use she and they pronouns. Uh, I'm an eating disorder outpatient dietitian, but not OJ's dietitian. And I work for a group private practice in the Boston area called Metro West Nutrition. And I serve pretty much 
only eating disorder patients. And I work from a fat liberation, social justice, anti-oppressive lens. Now I'm going to ask the two of you to talk about Third Wheeled and where it came, where it was born out of, because it was actually born out of negative experiences to try to find uh, people to understand you, people to understand partner support, people to understand queer support, like all of it. So please, where did that, how did you start that? Yeah, you're right. It did, it did kind of come to fruition out of some struggle, but it really has helped us um, gain strength with each other. And it's also been just a really positive kind of outcome of some really hard experiences. But essentially, we both started Third Wheel together in 2015. I can't believe it's been that long. And we kind of started it, I thought it was going to be like me and like my two friends reading our experiences. And it's definitely grown to be a bit bigger than that, um, which kind of talks to the vulnerability and the, the frightening Uh, aspect of it at times, like you were mentioning at the beginning. But basically, we started documenting and sharing um, our experiences navigating the mental health and eating disorder systems um, as queer people and also as two partners. So as CJ was my primary caregiver, there's a lot of um, uh, resources out there for parents of, of children with eating disorders. And that's so needed, so important. But there's not that much resource, that many resources out there for partners. So we we say that we're through Third Wheeled, we're addressing eating disorder recovery through a dual perspective and queer lens. So that of someone in recovery from an eating disorder and that of a partner um, supporting that person in an eating disorder. Um, And by sharing our story through social media, we really hope to find community and offer an often underrepresented story of recovery because there was there's really at the time in 2015, there was really no like queer stories of people in recovery that was that prevalent out there. So I didn't really, when I was in treatment, I was one of the only out queer people for some time. You know, thing in my experience, things have changed as treatment disorders have become slightly more inclusive. Um, I'm sure we'll get into that. <laughs> um, but there just wasn't that much out there. I felt very alone in my story at times. So we continue today to use our platform to advocate for inclusive and affirming research prevention and treatment of eating disorders in LGBTQIA plus communities. And we also kind of, we, we offer editorial services for eating disorder and mental health clinicians, along with trainings on how to cultivate affirming eating disorder treatment for queer communities. I I can't even tell you how everything that I've read about the two of you, about Third Wheeled, just about your stories, has just had such an impact on me. And I I find myself, or I, I would like to consider myself as very open, progressive, non-judgmental, non-discriminatory. And still, there were times when I would read things and be like, oh, and and some of them might not have even seemed like a big deal, but I just, my heart sank. And I, and I want to start by one thing that I read, OJ, from you is in one of your, your beautiful narratives, you talked about how a group leader in a treatment center said to all the quote unquote women in the group, like something to the effect, and I'm definitely paraphrasing, like, 
you know, something about what would your boyfriends think or recovering for your boyfriends. And to some people, that may seem not important. For some reason, to me, I thought that has got to be so damaging, minimizing, insulting, not, I, I don't know. I, I know I'm going off, but am I just rambling or is that something that you can even speak to? Yes, that is absolutely something I can speak to. And you're not rambling. Um, and I appreciate your um, sensitivity to, to that statement and that comment. I remember that so vividly. And I think that really speaks to the impact that it had on me, right? So, I mean, basically, when you're sitting in a group of people who you already don't really identify with, yes, maybe you all have eating disorders, and that's one underlying similarity to have a group leader's say something like that, that kind of not only singles you out, but also silences you, right? Because at that point, I can't engage with that material anymore. Um, I, it kind of shut me down. And I was just kind of like, this group isn't meant for me. This is not an inclusive group. Um, what are, do you feel, and, and I feel like we're just sort of, I'm bouncing around a little bit, but do both of you feel, and and Jamie, I'm asking you this as someone who's in the field, do you feel that things are becoming more inclusive? Listeners cannot see this, but there is a perfect little cat that keeps coming into the frame and OJ keeps trying to very calmly push the cat away. So I just wanted to point that out. So Jamie and OJ, are you noticing more education, more inclusivity? I, and I know we have a long way to go, but what are your thoughts about that? I'd love to hear from either of you. Sure. Um, I would say that people are starting um, to like learn and, and unlearn uh, and get more invested in like seeking out training and consultation from marginalized uh, groups. I think, uh, as you probably know, Karen, our training is, oh, well, I forgot you're a therapist, not a dietitian, sorry. <laughs> but I think it's true for a therapist too, correct me if I'm wrong. We get no training in eating disorders. So uh, there coming out of our training, there's so much to unlearn and learn just from the beginning in terms of talking about uh, weight stigma and weight bias. So I, I think people are, are, I think people are starting. I think they're starting to make changes. I think it's happening a lot in individual practices, I'd say, like individual clinicians. Uh, I think it is harder when you're facing like a larger institution, um, like treatment centers. Um, it just is harder to move them, I would say. OJ, go ahead. Yeah, I would say my experience when I first started entering recovery in 2015 versus when I was last in treatment um, quite recently, actually, and our pretty different. And I would say that um, individual clinicians are definitely making an impact. But as, as Jamie said, when you're confronted with a larger institution who maybe be maybe is a bit slower to, to pick up on things, it's a little bit more difficult. Um, 
I was going to say one more thing about this. And I forgot. It lost me for now. You know what? It happens to me all the time in the show. And then I say, give me a second. It'll come back to me. And like five minutes later, we'll be talking about something totally different. And I'll be like, oh, wait, wait, got it. We have to go back. So OJ, whenever it comes to your mind, just go for it. What I guess what I'm wondering is what would you like listeners to know? And and I know that Jamie, for you, it was really about not being considered the support person, like you said, as much as like a parent or a traditional spouse. Like, what do you want people to know? And OJ, I well, actually, I'm going to sometimes I get ahead of myself. I want to start with that, especially with treatment centers. Yeah, I mean, I think we really have to think uh, outside of the box, even beyond partners of like, just who is this primary support person, period, because it could, it could be a parent, it could be a partner, it could be someone's roommate, it could be someone's sibling, and bring that person into treatment in whatever way the the person in recovery wants them to be, and just really start thinking about um, how we can support those different dynamics because obviously like what a parent can provide to a child that dynamic is very different than a relationship that is kind of more an equal like playing field um like so, uh, someone's partner or someone's roommate um so uh i think even going beyond partners um it's just important to just start asking people who, who is like most accessible for you in terms of providing you with support? I know that when I used to work at residential programs and um, when I would run multifamily group, one of the things that I loved about it is we introduced multifamily group as your family is whoever you define who's here right now. It Just like you're saying, Jamie, it doesn't have to be a parent or whatnot. Your family, your supports, just like you said, whoever are the, the most prevalent in your life and the people that you feel safest around, or actually, dare I say, even people that you don't feel safe around if they're in your life, so they may need some psychoeducation. Um, and and I don't know, I just, my, my mind just went to that. What kinds of obstacles did you feel, Jamie, that you were, were kept coming up against that made you sort of want to, you know, talk more about this in, in your blog and, and in Third Wheeled and everything like that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think so. When OJ first got treatment for their eating disorder, I was in my internship year of uh, becoming a dietitian. So that is like your last year of education, quote unquote, and like training before you become a, a dietitian. So I knew because we don't get any uh, training in eating disorders, I knew nothing. So I, um, and it was my first time like just interacting with the mental health system in general. Uh, so I just like, no resources. Like, I don't remember any like therapist or social worker. We started out in like general psych hospital. Um, 
giving me any resources like or information or sitting down and like having a conversation with me about like this is what this means like this is what treatment could look like you know just walking me through like the process at all so I just like started hitting like Google books um I started connecting with like Boston eating disorder dietitians and I just started doing my own learning um so it was just like barrier against barrier, especially unfortunately starting with general psych because I don't know why, but uh, in general psych hospitals, uh, in our experience, they don't have any, like they don't address eating disorders at all. So they, they like didn't know what to do with OJ. Uh, they didn't have any information about like local treatment centers or like <laughs> so uh we were really at a loss and I think because of the stigma of mental health and eating disorders um it's just not the same as you know like a family member coming down with like a, a physical illness of like where your community support just really like holds holds you and helps you like through the process. So that's what I add like to this answering this question and our previous question is that I think we need to do more work around just not relying just on that one person, but act like resourcing out to our community of just like, if someone came down for a physical illness, I feel like that person usually gets connected to like, an advocate, right, <laughs> um, who can help them walk through like the whole treatment process. Their community may like give that family, you know, like meals, do their laundry for them. Like, uh, you know, just ask them what, what they need. And that just doesn't, unfortunately, I don't think happens when people uh, have eating disorders. They don't, they don't. OJ, what was your experience of having Jamie as your partner, but not really being given much guidance? Yeah, you know, I think, I think we were both just felt like we were at a loss. Like as, as Jamie said, I think I wasn't really at a place where I could make decisions for myself, quite honestly. And so I think a lot of pressure fell to Jamie, um, and I felt extremely guilty about that. I think at which at that point, that was kind of the last thing I needed. <laughs> um, I think that the lack of resources and lack of direction in the mental health facility is very detrimental right now for someone with eating disorders. And um, yeah, I'll leave it at that. Let me ask you, and I, I hope this is not provocative, but were you, or inappropriate, I should say, were you not seen as a couple? Was that part of it, that you were not seen as a traditional partner? Or do you think that had anything to do with that? Um, I think we were seen as a partner, but I don't think... Uh, 
we were given the same resources that like a parent and like a child. I just think if I was the parent of OJ, there would have been a lot more discussions and in uh, in su support. I will say, you know, we living in Boston, we're pretty lucky with with that being in a you know a queer relationship. I I don't think that played a role in the way we were treated. I think it was more just the dynamics. OJ, what is it like for you going through the recovery process with being queer, with gender identity, gender dysmorphia, things like that? You know, I I know, and and again, I I did a lot of reading before you before we got on for this, and you were talking about the fact that gender dysphoria is much more challenging, or from your perspective, incredibly challenging for somebody who's questioning their gender identity. And what are your thoughts about that? How has that been playing into your own recovery process? Yeah, thank you for asking that. It's such a big question. Um, I'm sorry. I hope it's not too big. No, no, not at all. You know, I can give some some concrete, specific examples. Um, but you're right. Gender dysphoria has been a huge part of my recovery, and in some ways, it's one thing that gets worse the farther you kind of get in recovery. At least that was my experience. Um, I think as someone who, whose weight, weight restoration was a part of my recovery, as that process um, kind of was happening, my gender dysphoria was getting worse. Um, I started to identify more with parts of my body that are more traditionally known as like feminine parts of your body, like my chest and my hips. I was way definitely way more aware of them and the awareness led to increased discomfort around them. And so the, it, um, it becomes, gender identity has become something I've grappled with more and more as recovery has progressed. Is there anything, and I'm, I'm imagining there's people that are listening right now that are in the same situation and thinking, how do we do it then? What do we do? Like, I have to imagine depression becomes a large component of this OJ. And, um, just it, it it's like you 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 recover from one thing which is or in the process recover from the the behaviors of the eating disorder but then it completely eclipses if that's the right term what it was the function you're still struggling with the the gender dysmorphia and so do you have any guidance again another really big question yeah, I think, um, yeah, a big question for sure, but one that is really, really important and one that I'm still grappling with every day. Um, I hate this saying, but it's so true. Like recovery isn't linear and no process, no part of this process is linear. Um, I think that one thing I would, one thing that has been very helpful for me is just reminding myself that when I am deep in my eating disorder, even though my gender dysphoria might feel slightly better, like a smidgen better, it's still something I really struggle with. And it's not worth the depression that comes with being deep in the eating disorder. And I think I've really connected to acceptance commitment therapy. It, 
with this um, connection to values, right? Connection to long-term, short-term and long-term consequences here. So like, what are my values? Are they, is it living in the eating disorder life where I'm like really disconnected from people, really isolated, not honest? No, that's not what I want to be. And so I, it's kind of weighing the pros and cons. And, you know, there are, um, there are things you can do to help minimize the discomfort of gender dysphoria, for instance, and I should say there sometimes that they're uncomfortable in their own right, like binding your chest is something you can do. It's pretty uncomfortable, but someone might decide that they want to pursue top surgery if that's something that feels right for them. Um, so there's gender affirming um, options that you can still pursue, but you can also really only pursue them when you're in a healthy, nourished body, right? So. I I wonder, and it was it was when when OJ you said about top surgery, is there weight bias involved in surgery like this and going to the doctors and having the, you know what I'm saying? Like, can either of you? either of you speak to that. In fact, you both very much like nodded your head and your eyes open. So, so what's, what's that all about? Oh gosh, Karen, this is, so I'll, I'll admit, and I'll be open and vulnerable. I'm pursuing top surgery currently. So this is very much at like the forefront of both of our minds. And, um, it's actually in fear and it's something we both are so passionate and infuriated by, but there are so many doctors. In fact, I would venture to say the majority of doctors, don't quote me on that, but <laughs> the majority of surgeons um, do have BMI limits for top surgery. So if you are, and, and they might differ by, you know, numbers. I, I don't even, I, I'm, they do, differ. they do differ. That's the thing. It's not like there's like one BMI limit across the board. So it just goes to show you how arbitrary it is. But so doctors have BMI limits saying that they won't operate on a client, on a patient who is above a certain BMI, which is so gatekeepy, so not okay. Because if someone needed heart surgery, you wouldn't be like, oh, your BMI is X, we're not going to operate on you. It's because that they're, they don't have practice operating in, in school, in medical school on fat clients. And so they don't feel comfortable because they don't know if their results will be like as sh good or something. I don't know. It's well, it's, I mean, it's, it's fat phobia. It's, it's, it's fat it's, phobia. It, that's exactly what it's it is. weight discrimination because surgeons have an idea of what quote unquote good results look like. So their shaping of like, what does a trans mask person like supposed to look like um and so it's, it's just and that's on top of like all the gatekeeping just to get surgery in general which is um a lot yeah <laughs> um, you need to get a letter from you need to get a letter from your a doctor and from a therapist just to get consults for top surgery as if you need permission that's a powerful term right there the fact that it feels like you need permission from others it should be permission from self right a hundred percent it it should be this is this is what i am asking for i i know my body the best it is mine i am telling you what i want go ahead oh, and 
in eating disorder recovery, I found that one of the things that is most powerful is developing a sense of autonomy over my body, regaining that sense, regaining that connection to my body. And by having to seek permission to get a gender affirming surgery from someone else, that's removing some of that autonomy, right? Have, has it been difficult for you to get those letters or, and, and by the way, I don't even mean just literally difficult. Like, is it emotionally wearing to say to somebody, could you write this letter telling the doctors what I want about my life? Like, what is it like? Yeah, that's a great question. It's been interesting. I have when I decided to ask for the letters, there was a sense of like, oh, I'm placing the burden on someone else. Like they have to write these kind of nonsense letters. And I feel like the one of the surgeons actually sent me a template that they just had to fill in my like name and pronouns. And it's just like, that just goes to show you that the, the this is just a process that people are doing to check off boxes, you know? And I would say it was emotionally taxing just to have to have these conversations and be like, and and I was a little nervous that what if they said no and they weren't going to write the letter? Like that's scary to just think about. Unfortunately, fortunately, that that is not what happened. But I will say just the the preemptive nature of it was a bit anxiety provoking. And the letters don't even like speak to OJ's like truth about their gender because I mean first of all how I don't think let me be like clear I don't think anyone uh should have to like get letters like to get surgery I think that should be completely done with um but the letters that they did receive didn't even like speak to the way that they experienced their gender which is like how can you put that in a letter um and so you're just like, you're just like, yeah, like OJ showed it to me. And I was like, yeah, I guess that, I mean, you just have to say what you have to say to get insurance, to get improved, right. To get coverage. Like <laughs> it's, it's actually quite dehumanizing though, for such a vulnerable, frightening experience, by the way, whenever we're in a doctor's office or getting medical treatment, Typically, it's because we're injured or sick or need something done or changed or whatnot. We're at our most vulnerable. We're also somewhat, depending on who you are, we are can be very intimidated by the medical practitioners. You know, they, or, or at least I'll speak for myself, they, to me, are like the all-knowing. And if I go to the doctors and say, this is what's wrong, and they say, well, this is what you need to do, I, I go, okay, I don't really. So if, if a doctor said to me, well, this is the, these are the steps you need to take first, just to even consider to do this, that's exhausting. And that's, that's frightening to know that somebody else has that much control over your lives. That is really, really intense. What do you think, how could we support this? Like, like what is the best way to go about, you know, advocating for, for change? Like, for, again, for, for dehumanizing such an intimate, what do you do? There is um, an organization called Gallup. I can send you the link in case any of your listeners want to sign up. It's for 
therapists who um, are trained in, in writing these letters and will provide letters for um, people for free. That's one way we can kind of just combat the system. And I think just, um, I actually just, and hopefully connecting with someone <laughs> soon who is uh, going to put together a class action lawsuit against um, having these BMI requirements. So I think it's community organizing and pushback against uh, insurance companies and surgeons who are creating these unnecessary barriers to access. Mm -hmm. Well, the BMI is such an arbitrary thing anyway. I mean, I, I, and, and I've said this before on the podcast and forgive me, everyone. I, I'm not saying this, I'm paraphrasing a lot, uh, but years ago, the BMI changed overnight. They changed the BMI and overnight people were put in different categories. They went from being in like what we'll call quote unquote, and I'm definitely putting in the quotes, normal weight to overweight or overweight to obese or underweight overnight. Nothing in their bodies changed except for the fact that they changed the BMI calculator. So it's, it's, it's pretty infuriating. Jamie, what do you notice as a dietitian with people that are struggling similar to what OJ is going through with gender dysphoria and, you know, the function that the eating disorder plays in that? Uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> uh, there's a lot of different, like just obviously continuous discussions. And I think I do my best to try to focus on uh, like really gender exploration and just trial and you're just trying things on and like see what feels good um, and then if that feels good go with it if it doesn't then you do something else right like when someone changes their pronouns it could feel great or you could be like actually that like doesn't work for me you try something else right um and so I think being really, really flexible, which is hard in general, like with our brains, like to be very black and white, and then you add on an eating disorder and we like to be like really rigid. So I think it's helpful to like really encourage like flexibility and that nothing is like, has to be permanent. Um, like you can try hormones and if, they feel good, then you continue. If they don't feel good, then you can stop maybe, and then maybe go back to it later, like, or you end up never going back on them. Like, <laughs> um, so, and, and I think just like normalizing the experience and anxiety and fear of making some of these decisions. I think um, a lot of people think like, if I'm going to try hormones, I should know like a hundred percent. There should be no doubt in my mind. Like I shouldn't be anxious about anything. I should just like, know. but it's like, I, I haven't come into conversation with anyone who isn't holding like some anxiety around it. And so um, 
that is okay. You can still make a decision, um, even if you're, you know, even if there's some anxiety around it. Yeah. OJ, you look like you were going to say something. Yeah, I was just going to respond to that because I, I have a lot of experience with kind of the being flexible and transitioning and being in recovery. Um, so I I actually started testosterone and was on it for, for quite some time and decided to come off of it. And, you know, one thing within the queer community is I feel like sometimes there's this pressure that you have to know everything about your transition, know everything about your identity, feel really confident in order to be like enough. And, and I, and I think that that's really difficult. So I I'm non-binary and I feel like when I was making the decision to come off of testosterone, I was like, well, if I come off of it, that means I'm really not non-binary or non-binary enough. But, you know, really that's not what I, what dictates a gender identity at all. So that's why I wanted to share this in case there are listeners out there going through the same thing. Um, being on hormones, not being on hormones doesn't dictate your gender identity. Um, there's many reasons why people go on and off. For me, it was quite difficult to be on them and be going through recover the recovery process simultaneously. Um, and like Jamie said, I'm I'm flexible with it. It's it, I don't know if it's a forever decision or if it's you know a revisiting. Yeah, go ahead, Jamie. Yeah, and I think um I think that is what is helpful of like you don't need to know your destination. Some people may have like a clear understanding, um, like no for sure this is the steps that I want to take in my transition. Um, and then some people don't and like being okay with that. Like, I mean, I think we're constantly like a, the stuff that what I know about my gender now, I did not know like two years ago. Um, and I'm sure I'll know more about my own gender two years from now. <laughs> um, so I think it's, I think it's ongoing and people's ex I think it's just constantly asking about your clients experience their experience because it's going to be so different like I've had some clients who since starting uh, testosterone are more connected to their bodies like they were living in their head and now they're feeling better and like more aware of of what their body is like telling them. And then I've also like similarly to OJ's experience had clients where um, it can be really uncomfortable to experiencing, to experience like weight redistribution changes, even if it's something that you want while also, um, you know, trying to minimize eating disorder behaviors or experiencing weight gain from like weight restoration through the recovery process. So I think there there's as many trans and non-binary people that there are in the world, that's how many different experiences there are. So I think you really can't make any assumptions of like this person starting hormones and then this is what it's gonna look like or that it's gonna be like a cure for their eating disorder. Like they're, <laughs> you know, gonna get, you know, start hormones, maybe get gender affirmation surgery, and then we won't have to worry about their eating disorder anymore. Well, that reminds me when, you know, 
obviously all my clients know that I'm recovered from an eating disorder because I do a podcast about it and talk about it all the time. Um, but I often say to them, just because I had anorexia nervosa doesn't mean I understand your anorexia nervosa 100%. It's not the same. Our behaviors were not the same. Our, our influences into the eating disorder, not the same. And our recovery, not going to be the same. So I can, you know, I, I've told my story a number of times at like colleges and things like that. And I also like very, very clearly say, this is my experience. Don't think that you're not doing it right if you're not doing it through my experience. Don't think that you're doing it right because you are doing it the way, you know, everybody, everybody is unique. And we can never make the assumption that because we're struggling with something similar, that we know somebody else's experience. That's, that's just not the way that that's, that's too close minded. You have to let everybody experience things on their own and articulate it in their own way. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that just speaks to the complexity of the illness too, you know? Yeah. I'm wondering, and, and I, I'm actually going to make a really hard turn, which I do often. I'm, I'm not very, you know, I'm very eloquent about it. I'm like, we're just going to take a turn. I, I would like to ask a question. And I also would like to honor if it is something that you do not want to talk about. I've been sitting here, I've been apprehensive thinking, do I want to ask this question? And I think it's because I've never had two people on simultaneously. Um, Jamie, I'm wondering, and, and again, please hear me. I, I respect and honor anything that anyone says, which might be, I would rather not discuss this. I, I guess my question is, is what is it like being an eating disorder dietitian and having somebody that you love and care about and are in partnership with struggling with an eating disorder? And again, I want to honor if you don't want to go there. Yeah, no, that's okay. I'm, we're an open book. <laughs> um, yeah, I think uh, it, we definitely had like many different iterations of what our like what my support looks like to OJ in us trying to figure out what will work and support our relationship so in the beginning I was definitely acting more as like the food police which um and not like the food <laughs> not the food police like eating disorder food police like <laughs> um uh more, I guess, of like a parental role that a parent may take. Um, and that obviously like did not feel well for either one of us. Um, but again, I, I mean, I didn't know what to do. And my, like, my anxiety was so high. I mean, you're seeing your like loved one in so much pain and their health is jeopardized. Um, so you're, I think you're reacting to that. So we did that, which did not work. <laughs> um, and then I think, um, I think we've, we've figured out like how I can help hold some like accountability when OJ needs that, but not 
over their head where I'm like monitoring every like bite of food that they take or don't take. Um, and then I've just, you know, fortunately OJ has access to a treatment team. And so I just rely on their treatment team. <laughs> yeah. And OJ, what is it like having an eating disorder? And as I described you to, to Jamie, having your partner, the person you love, all this, be a dietitian specializing in eating disorders. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things where like, I love it and I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> like two things can be true. It's the ultimate dialectic here. Um <laughs> I love it because I know that she really understands the disorder and she really doesn't understand me. And so in the times when I really need and want the support, she's there to help me. And, and as she said, there's been many iterations and it's a, her support has evolved over the years. We've gone to like family therapy to kind of figure out what is best for both of us. And then sometimes I hate it because she knows the eating disorder so well, and it's just, you know, you can hate it for the same reasons, but I know that that's really when my eating disorder is creeping in. But I think there's a lot of gratitude I hold, honestly. I think I also, I fortunately like feel like I don't even think about it. I'm just like a person <laughs> um, with my partner. Like I don't put on, I don't think my eating disorder like hat. Uh, my own like quote unquote like flaws show up a lot in uh, the in supporting like OJ's recovery process. So my like go my go to like coping is avoidance. So there will be times where like their eating disorder is very active, and I just like I'm like I can't see anything. Nothing's happening. <laughs> um, and and I've if. If I was an eating disorder dietitian and that was going on with my patient, you know, something I would act differently. I would act differently. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so and and I don't think support people again, and we talked earlier, get enough support around what they're experiencing. Like, like by the way. Jamie, if there are times when you have to say, I'm just, I got to avoid this. I can't look at it. I can't, if that's what's best for you in the moment, and then that's ultimately going to help the two of you or help OJ. I mean, there's no right or wrong way to be a support person either. Right? Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> yeah. And we've been really fortunate that my parents live closest OJ's parents live in New York my parents live only like 30 minutes away from us and when OJ was hospitalized for a while um, with their eating disorder we actually were just happened to be living with my parents at that time um, which was great and really helpful for me because I was like um commuting like back and forth to the hospital a lot to see OJ and like my parents did my laundry without like asking my mom just like did it and then <laughs> um and then like whenever I got back from the hospital like dinner was just like on the table like those everyday things I didn't have to think about 
um, which when you're in crisis is really helpful. I know people, people tend to forget about how just the everyday events of life are so overwhelming when you're in crisis and they seem so hard and something like your mom doing your laundry or making your dinner is, is such a gesture of love and support. You know what I mean? I I'm really, really sad to say this, but we are starting to come to an end. We're going to have to start closing this down, but I, I just, I can't even tell you how much I I've just enjoyed just sitting with the two of you. So before we close and before I ask you your final question, um, is there anything that I didn't ask that either of you would like to share with listeners or anything at all that you'd just like to share? I don't think so. Just thank you so much for having us. This has been such a pleasure. It's been so nice to sit with you as well. Thank you. Thank you. So this is an interesting dilemma because again, I've never had two people on at the same time. So I have one question and I think, let me think about this. How am I going to, how should we answer this? Hmm. We combined it. Oh, you did. Got you. Yeah. Oh. Thank God. All right. So you know the question. If somebody were to write about you on a bathroom stall, what would it say? So we went back to the 90s. We're thinking about how things are written on bathroom stalls. And we thought that people would say BFF for life with a Y and with the number four. <laughs> I love it. I can picture the four, the number four. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Or, or for, I used to write forever so that like four and then ever. I love yeah. it. But with an A, not an ER. Oh, I love it so much. <laughs> Jamie and OJ, thank you both very, very much for, for being on the show. It was really quite a pleasure having the both of you. Thank you, Karen. Thanks so much for having us. All right, everyone. That does it for another episode of Recovery Bites. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. To wrap for this week's episode of Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. And I thank each and every one of you for tuning in with me. You can view more from today's episode, including guest information and excerpts by visiting www.karenlewisedc.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to future shows by searching Recovery Bites on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast. All right, everybody. Be well, and thanks for listening to my Bite for the Week. 